This podcast was brought to you by our supreme boilers of leather, the Elton Dane, the new sword of the morning, Morgan, and Kate Kachka. If you want to find out how to become a supreme boiler of leather, or if you want access to all the cool bonus materials we offer, head over to patreon.com slash boiled leather audio hour. Welcome everyone to a new episode of the Boiled Leather Audio Hour. It's been two months and change, I guess, since we talked about Barbie. And since Barbenheimer was the big event of the day, I have been burning to talk about Oppenheimer as well. But real life got in the way back then, so I didn't do the double feature. I only watched Barbie in cinema, the plebeian in me. Uh, And now I have a very good guest to talk about Oppenheimer, finally, which I was able to see on Blu-ray now. And said guest is no stranger to this podcast. We had him on before on nuclear-related topics. Uh, and so he seemed the obvious choice to talk about Oppenheimer. Please introduce yourself, sir. Thanks. Yeah, when the, the Geiger counter starts clicking, it usually means I'm coming. Uh, so my name is Tim Westmeyer. I am someone who works on nuclear security, non-proliferation issues, and studies this for fun. Uh, also host a podcast that talks about nuclear weapons and the portrayal in film, Oppenheimer. Probably the biggest release of a movie portraying nuclear weapons in terms of like profile of the director, the amount of money that it made, uh, you know, its connection to this kind of pop culture thing you mentioned about you know, Barbenheimer in my lifetime. So excited to talk about it and see how it uh, translates across the world and what people think when they, you know, hear from us and, and get a sense of what their expectation is. Because, yeah, you're right. It came out on Blu-ray. Uh, fairly recently, and that prompted me to go back and buy it on Amazon. So ask for it for your Christmas list if you haven't had a chance yet. Yep, that is absolutely recommended, uh, recommended viewing. Uh, I want to I want to spoil the uh, the initial assessment that I have about this movie, because when I talked to Sean about Barbie, I was not quite as positive as a lot of people were uh, about that movie. Um, and I can say with full confidence, I really loved Oppenheimer. Uh, I mean, this is a beast of a movie. And I, I have to say, I'm glad that I didn't go to the double feature because this movie is like three and a half hours long uh, and then put Barbie's two hours on top. Uh, and depending on the uh, on the order in which you w- would have watched the movies or in which I would have watched those movies, uh, I think with the letdown that Barbie was for me, uh, oh my God, uh, this would have been a grueling experience, like six hours and change in uh, in cinema. Poof, boy, um, I'm, I'm too old for this shit, is what I'm saying. I would have loved to have seen some data from the movies um, if people would talk about which one they saw first. Because you see Oppenheimer and then you go to see Barbie. I don't know what world you're in because when you're done with Oppenheimer, I'm ready to sit in a, a dark room for a while and reflect on life. So I'm curious to see what people uh, saw one first or the other. Yeah, that's true. So if any one of you listening did the double feature, please let us know. But I would argue, uh, now having seen both of them, you should start with Barbie, uh, I think. But if you had another uh, experience, please uh, tell us about it. Uh, That would be fairly interesting. Because otherwise, these two movies have nothing in common. I talked about this with uh, Sean on the Barbie podcast already. But this was a weird 
uh, event in which I do not think was coordinated by the studios, at least at first. Uh, this started as a dumb meme, I think, and then got a life of its own, which is really beneficial for Oppenheimer and Barbie both, um, but especially so for Oppenheimer, given the the topic and the running time and the whole movie in and of itself. Because you wouldn't expect a biopic about the father of the atomic bomb which is framed structurally by a Congress hearing <laughs> to become a major uh, hit. And yet it was. So why do you think that is? Well, as someone who tries to get people to think about uh, nuclear issues very seriously and and the really not a lot of popular culture about that to um, help with that process, that's not from the Cold War uh, or about spy thrillers or James Bond movies, it was very welcomed because it probably brought a lot of people into the theaters to really examine this in a serious but entertaining way than I think anyone else would have been able to do. But in terms of the why this pop culture moment happened, I think it really started, as you're right, you said it, like as a meme moment, it was a contrast between something very light and funny, uh, you know, the, that kind of pink uh, Barbie motif, and then Oppenheimer, which is already serious by itself, and then a Christopher Nolan take on that uh, i think in the fact that it was released on the same day it was a cool it, it worked really well it, it it made sense i really don't think it was um coordinated at least at first but then it certainly became that way but it, i know for a lot of people in the community of people that i work in and kind of non-proliferation arms control nuclear stuff people jumped on that because like i mentioned people wanted to talk about these issues in a very serious way so that became i think a rolling meme at least in our our community uh where everyone was like organizing parties to go see this stuff and um yeah i think it is a contrast and people love contrast between two different things and this really combined together and it also impressed me too it, apparently oppenheimer has the record for making the most amount of money but never being number one in the box office and it because he could never beat barbie but it was always like number two for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks um that i, I think just a, a really fascinating moment for uh for film yeah, absolutely. I want to stay with the movie itself uh, for a little while before we go on talking about the more more heavy stuff, you know, uh, going into the room and all of that. Um, but I was actually incredibly surprised at the relentless pace of the movie. I mean, it's Christopher Nolan. I shouldn't have been surprised, um, but uh, he had his misfires. Uh, and so uh, this could have been one. And three and a half hours running time is a lot. And I started watching this movie alone which for me is always a problem I have. Movie watching for me is more of a communal experience and I do not like doing it alone. Uh, but for reasons uh, of scheduling and stuff, uh, I had to do it alone. And I started it in the evening, like eight o'clock, something like this. And I was fully prepared to put this movie on pause uh, at some point because it, wa it wasn't my best day. I was a little bit tired anyway. And then I was going through the movie and it was like one and a half hours and I felt a little bit tired and I thought, yeah, that's same. Two hours later, I was like, okay, uh, let's let's wait for the Trinity test. <laughs> the Trinity was like, okay, now I have to know how that goes. And at some point, it was half past 11. The movie was over. My heart was pounding from this movie in which people talk and you have cross uh, big, these, uh, these huge close-ups of faces. Uh, and it shouldn't have been this engaging. It shouldn't have pulled me through with that visceral energy that it had. But it did. Uh, and I can't even tell you why, really. 
because everything in its structure, in what it is about, in how it is framed and done, should not work like uh, on paper. With the framing device uh, of the hearing, especially given that the plot of the movie itself, like the atomic um, the atomic attack on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, that's like, what, a half hour, uh, 45 minutes before the end. So at that point, the movie is essentially over and we're moving into Return of the Kings in, uh, territory with uh, additional endings, uh, essentially. And it remains incredibly engaging with, uh, with this story uh, that had for a huge part of the movie been this running theme of which you didn't really know what to make uh, like it's uh, it's small scenes where you get uh, these persons that may have names but honestly it for me it's just um the senator or whatever he is and his aide um and and they're doing stuff and you don't really know what and why and at the end of the movie it suddenly all clicks into place and it becomes one gigantic narrative and you can suddenly see how it is connected uh, in the plot threads and in the thematic threads. And that is quite an accomplishment. Yeah, I would, and I would add on that because I, I completely agree that the imagery that they sprinkle throughout the film are really, really impressive. You know, like from the opening shots of rain dropping um, kind of outside and on the puddles and those raindrops on a puddle and you see a little, you know, expanding out circle. Uh, and then to, they do that again later as a, a motif where it's on top of a map. And then they do it again where it's bombs exploding and you realize it's this running, these are detonations uh, in, in blast radius. And um, it's all part of this running connections of what, what do you do when you are presented with this choice of being able to build uh, something that can destroy the world and, what, what what responsibility someone has, um, what is the things, if you succeed in your task that you think was initially important for ending World War II and someone else was gonna get it who was worse and all of those, and once that's done and you wanna pull that back, how do you, do you, do you have the ability to do that anymore? It's no longer your control. You know, you've heard of death of the author. It's just like death of the scientist. It's not respond there. Even if they feel responsible, it's not their choice anymore. And they really continue to pull on that uh, and that structure you mentioned earlier, it's it's even more fascinating when you think about like the fact Christopher Nolan style, it's there's time jumps. Uh, there's that some of it's in black and white, which I guess you would argue is like our present time and then everything else in color is in the past. Um, that is just a, a really challenging approach. And with the people that they this pulled in with with Barbie as the double feature, I'm not sure many of them were traditional Christopher Nolan type people. So I would just, I just want more of that. I want less stories about um, uh, what is the average person in America who's a Trump supporter and, and their, um, why they decided to become a Trump supporter because of economic anxiety. I want to know about the bros who came to talk, see this movie and what they took away from it because they're so different than everything else. Uh, so anyways, I, I just found that really fascinating and the structure of the film really hits you right at the end, as you said. And that last line, those conversations, which we could talk about with with um, Einstein, even though that is one of the only things in the film that really didn't happen in real life, it was one of the most powerful. And I was a good, good choice of art, like poetic um, license. It's one of those things that could have happened, uh, you know. Uh, it makes total sense, even if you, I, I'm not sure, uh, maybe you can shed some light. Is this just not proven or is it absolutely impossible that it happened? 
that conversation with Eisen, with Einstein. Uh, I mean, it could have happened. Uh, there's there's some stuff that we know they made choices um, with, and it's I think it all structurally makes sense when. So the part of the premise is, is that they're when they were first coming up with theoretically, could you build a nuclear weapon? There was some math that showed, well, what happens if you ignite this level of heat uh, on, on Earth? Will it ignite the atmosphere? Will it cause a chain reaction where the basically the world would be destroyed, all the oxygen and, and the atmosphere would catch on fire? So it was a small chance, but they wanted to test the math by a bunch of different people. Oppenheimer brought it to this guy named Compton, who was this brilliant mathematician who was a part of the Manhattan Project. And Einstein even mentions, you know, don't look, don't give it to me in the movie when Oppenheimer brings it to him, you bring it to Compton. Um, but that's what happened in real life. Einstein wasn't part of that conversation because Einstein at that point was largely kind of out of the place. He had been, he had a role in the Manhattan Project as a supporter early on. It really was a pop culture figure in that sense. Uh, to get momentum for the bomb project. But it's not like it couldn't, I just think that the main thing is that it could have happened. And we know that later on in his life, Oppenheimer had conversations like this in public. He went on lecture series. He talked to a variety of people. So this conversation probably took place just now with, with Einstein. But I think as a framing device, it's very, very effective. Yeah, and it also profits from Einstein being, well, Einstein. Uh, he's just the most famous uh, person in there. And I think they are treating that um, very, uh, very well. <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, uh, talking about the double feature uh, once more for a moment, what you mentioned, how many people did see this who would usually not see it. That's why I'm kind of um, positive towards the whole thing. Maybe they should start. Uh, leaning a little bit into this model like do sh do shorter movies again like movies that run have run times an hour 20 an hour 30 and simply do double features of wildly different stuff maybe even of different budgets uh like they used to do like in the 40s and 50s uh, you know um and, and bring that back uh, could be a revival for cinema and could broaden horizons maybe i don't know uh it's just well there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of theaters at least in, in the states like the you've heard of the Alamo um, Drafthouse Cinema stuff they do uh, various curated double features of stuff you wouldn't expect but you get in there and you're like oh thematically yeah this makes sense and they can never do it with two three hour movies um, but I think that's more like a, an art house theater thing it seems like so but they take that model and as you said bring it to the more mainstream box office stuff yeah. I, I I would be a favor of it once I uh, can bring my kid in and actually sit through a movie together. We can we can try six hours next. Yeah, uh, yeah, totally. And we also talked already about Christopher Nolan having his his own take. Yeah, you know, with the time jumps uh, and all of it. And this is a an incredibly heady topic, like uh, much more so than with stuff like Inception or even his previous uh, historical thing when we go to Dunkirk. Uh, that's a lot easier to grasp and I think ultimately easier to dra uh, dramatize, dramatize uh, than is Oppenheimer and uh, the nuclear bomb. And one of the big challenges that you have to overcome, which shouldn't really be underestimated, is that we know the outcome of all this. He manages to make it ex an exciting question of will or will the will the uh, chain reaction stop in the atmosphere or not? We are all here. We know it stopped, um, and still it is uh, it is interesting. The Trinity test that I already mentioned before, we know it worked. 
But still, uh, the sequence in the movie is so suspenseful. Like it, it is incredible, even without uh, any personal um, f- fates on the line. Like in Dunkirk, I do not know who will get it and who won't. Uh, so I know that a significant number of people make it out, but I do not know if the characters do. Uh, but in Oppenheimer, no one will die. Uh, so this is not this is not a question, and yet it is still uh, fascinating. We do know that the attack on Japan happens, how it works, uh, that Japan will capitulate. All of that is known in the beginning. I mean, we even... If you are a person who is literate in the structure of movies, you can imagine that Robert Downey Jr. will not get confirmed uh, in his position just for dramatic reasons. And still, it comes as a surprise and a genuine twist. And this speaks to the incredible craft uh, that uh, Nolan possesses. Yeah, and I, I would say that it's a fun little trick because um, I think there's some people that may not have known like what happened to Oppenheimer, like with the clearance. So that was maybe a surprise or there was people who didn't follow. Oh, wait, Dowdy Jr. is like when you, the senator character. He's a villain early. You know, he's maybe a, a paper thin villain, but he's a villain because at the beginning, they don't, you're right. You don't really know who he is. Um, and we know the Trinity test worked, but I, I think that the trick, the great final reveal is we all were focused on whether or not the atmosphere was going to catch on fire. But really, what's the difference between the atmosphere catching on fire because of the Trinity test? And then ultimately, I think what the movie ends with, which is this power that we've created and brought to this earth of, of nuclear weapons. And the fact that now they're, you know, at one point during the Cold War, there were tens of thousands of these things. And there's still quite a lot of them right now. That if a World War Three starts and because of no one has the proper understanding that these of the danger of these things. Um, and it becomes this cycle of just, it's a new power tool that someone has. If the world war three starts, what's the difference if the world ends through mistake or uh, because of a nuclear test or because of mistake and, and miscalculation and, and or violence elsewhere. I think that's the kind of the fun bit at the end is like, you're, you're kind of hooked. Oh, we're fine. The Trinity test did kill us all. And then you're like, Oh crud, we're still living in this this kind of where the movie ends um, that kind of final reveal where uh, Oppenheimer is, expresses his concern that we may have still set the world on fire. It's just going to take a little while. I think that's hopefully people realize that it means that you're living in it. And if you want to do something about it, now is the time to do something about it. Yeah. I mean, the movie also profits, I guess a little bit uh, that the question has become much more topical since February, 2021, uh, 22 uh, with Russia's attack on Ukraine the whole specter of uh, nuclear war has reared its ugly head back into public consciousness. I mean, this was thoroughly a thing of the past. Like, um, the whole deterrence, uh, nuclear arms control, etc., etc., uh, the nuclear triad, uh, it all always smacked of yesterday's discussions. Like, I do remember uh, when uh, the Republican debates in 2015, 2016, when uh, such a lot of political hay was made out of Trump not knowing what the nuclear triad was, I was also a little bit like, yeah, and who cares, <laughs> right? Uh, it's, it's not like it's relevant anymore. Uh, and then suddenly it is, uh, you know, which point in case where Trump shouldn't be president, but uh, that's uh, that's another issue. The thing is, we are playing with forces here that we have 
forgotten or at least pushed back uh, into the public subconscious uh, at some point, uh, but uh, who have now shown once again just how important they are and what they can actually do. And I would assume that Nolan started work on the movie before uh, the Russian invasion, so uh, that is more like uh, an unexpected side effect, uh, I would assume. Uh, but I can't help but feeling that the reception of Oppenheimer and especially the sharpness uh, of the warning in it, it becomes much more um, relevant today than it would have been without it. Like if this movie had been released in 2021, it would all have read more as a lookout on the rest of the Cold War. Uh, basically, like you can see this leading to the Cuban Missile Crisis, and then you have Detente, de uh, and then you have maybe the second Cold War episode with Abe Larcher and that kind of stuff. But then it's over. Like, uh, yeah, it projects into the future, but it also ends in our past, and now it very determinedly doesn't. Yeah. The origin story for this film is really fascinating. Like, uh, he we Christopher Nolan had wanted to do an Oppenheimer movie for a while, but never really could understand what it was. Like, what was the hook going to be? Apparently Robert Pattinson gave him a bunch of speeches that Oppenheimer gave later in his career um, on the set of the movie Tenet, or as kind of like, or maybe it was as a final farewell wrap up gift. And that really, because it was about a person, I think Tenet is about a time travel stopping a WMD. He's like, here, here's another person who, built something like this and tried to, you know, pull it back. And then that got really him a little bit hooked. And the, and this whole story is, is largely based around this really great, um, you know, biography of Oppenheimer called American Prometheus. And the authors of that book tried to get this commission into a movie. They tried a couple different scripts. People had bought it and it didn't really work out. And finally they all got connected and it just clicked that, Oh, you could tell the story this way. And, this is the final, you know, ultimate outcome that we we get. And yeah, Nolan mentioned a couple of times this was important to him. Um, but he, he mentioned that the Russia bit was really just coincidence, you know, kind of near the end. But I, I fully agree with you. It's a lot of this weird stuff where I study a lot of movies that have nuclear weapons stuff in them. And I always wonder, is, uh, is sometimes is the author's purpose or the screenwriter's purpose to move the needle towards one way or another when it comes to nuclear things? Is it just to reflect the anxiety and concerns of the populace at the time. Oppenheimer was this interesting thing where he may have, Nolan may have felt it, but the rest of the world didn't feel it. But it happened to be when it was released, people were feeling it. Uh, so what ultimate outcome that comes to be of if there is any sort of change or if it doesn't have to be, it's just going to be art reflecting on a moment. I think it still remains to be seen, but it is really a fascinating thing. And I, I hope this movie gets continued um, viewing over the time now that it's out on Blu-ray. That brings me to a question that you might be able to answer. Are there any movies that look positively on the concept of nuclear deterrence? But most movies, or all movies I can think of from the day after, War Games, um, the, uh, 13 Days, and now Oppenheimer. Um, I'm sure I miss some, uh, like uh, all those U-boat movies, um, uh, Crimson Tide, etc. Uh, every time nuclear weapons are involved and the concept of nuclear deterrence is involved, it's always either going awry uh, or it is a flawed concept from the beginning. Are there any movies uh, in which um, nuclear deterrence is actually shown as something positive like peacekeeping or something like this that's really interesting so uh 
there are, I mean, there's there's basic ones where nuclear weapons are the heroes, and you could describe that as like uh, Independence Day, for example, is one of those films. Nuclear weapons save the day at the end by blowing up everything. So it's a good thing that we have them. Um, Armageddon, same thing. Good thing we have these things because we can deal with deal with asteroids. So that's a very basic level as a plot device. You know, those are nuclear weapons save the day. And there's a whole genre of those kind of movies. Um, I think a lot of filmmakers try to walk the line that a lot of some of all fears it's not necessarily that nuclear deterrence breaks down it's someone tries to trick it uh by by starting a war by doing a, you know a terrorist attack that actually is a they think it's the russians so they think deterrence already broke down because there's a war started or there's an accident like uh, all the kinds of movies where there is maybe a miscalculation thinking that the, the war had started but it was a computer malfunction and it wasn't actually a first strike. So I think that's where a lot of filmmakers draw that line. Um, but then in terms of movies where nuclear deterrence is really heavily effective, there is a lot of early propaganda films by people who made things like there's a movie called Strategic Air Command, which is this heroic film about people who used to fly the bombers on 24-hour deterrence patrols. And it's about their life and it's a drama on top of that. But that's literally made by the Air Force, essentially. So there's that piece of it. But then there's other movies. I think the best example I can think of quickly, there is a movie called Deterrence. It stars Kevin Pollack. It's a really fascinating film about a president who's on campaign trail for re-election. They get stuck in this small town American diner during a winter storm. And while they're stuck there and they can't get out, a crisis happens in the Middle East. And ultimately, to sorry, spider spoiler alert, Kevin Pollack um, detonates a nuclear bomb on Baghdad to stop like what they thought was going to be a, a, a war or, or an attack. And there was this whole other reveal and a trick about what's going on. But essentially, he does this thing, then resigns and says, I did my job and everything is good. And you're like, what? This movie was lighthearted up until this point. That I think is an example of possibly of like showing use of weapons and it's still not shown in an amazing light, but it's like the game of deterrence and how it would be effective. Um, give me think of some more examples of that, but I, there aren't, there, you're right. There aren't a lot that just come out that way because I think it typically that kind of movie rubs people maybe the wrong way, but I would also just say any film where these weapons don't cause that stuff is typically you know, status quo deterrence is going to always be effective and has been and will be forever. But let me think of some more examples of that. That's a fun question. I have the feeling that this is just a concept that many people are intensely uncomfortable engaging with intellectually, uh, let alone emotionally. Uh, I have, I am too young to remember the actual Cold War. I mean, when the Berlin Wall fell, I was like five years old. So um, I, I do not have any actual uh, memories of how it was to live, uh, as they say, under the bomb. Um, but from my experience, this is, when, whenever you bring up the topic and whenever you discuss this in greater detail, like for example, when I do this in history class and, uh, and I'm explaining the whole concept of deterrence and second strikes and uh, mutually assured destruction uh, and all that stuff to students and try to get them into the headspace of the logic uh, of it, it is intensely uncomfortable. And what I fall back on is a great um, 
a great formulation that was coined uh, by Dan Carlin uh, of the uh, Hardcore History podcast. He called it logical insanity, uh, which, which is just a great concept because it means like it is all logical, uh, everything in it, but the whole concept is insane. <laughs> like, um, and you cannot get out of this basic uh, conundrum, uh, essentially. Uh, that yeah, no, sorry, sorry the, the point, I mean, it's an obvious point, but still it, it merits reputation because we are talking about the end of the world. These weapons are, uh, at, at least from, let's say, the end of the 1950s, everyone is in agreement that if you use this, these weapons, it's over. And the whole purpose of these weapons is to be never used. And this makes them as singular uh, in human experience because there never has been a weapon like this. Every weapon was always meant to be used. And nuclear weapons aren't. They are there, so you do not use them. And the constant um, uh, scenarios, the constant wargaming of scenarios in which you maybe could use them, like the, uh, the much-quoted tactical uh, nuclear weapon that Russia may or may not use and uh, with which the U.S. Army um, uh, experimented in the 50s. Uh, this is just one um, attempt uh, of getting an actual use out of the technology and it has never led anywhere. So this is, I think, a, a whole different category. I don't even know if it makes sense to categorize it as a weapon. Yeah, that's a great point. And, uh, you know, just what um, I would say is that the history of the atomic bomb is really fascinating because when they were first were created, they weren't conceived as much different than a very large bomb. Uh, yes, it would it would cause incredible destruction all at once, but it's it's like the equivalent of one moment of destruction versus several days of bombing, like in to you know against Tokyo or other places that may have caused higher fatality counts. But in the military sense, this was not really a, a different kind of weapon. And what ultimately happened over the next ten years was a dramatic increase in the number of weapons, types of weapons. We had anywhere from battlefield artillery that was nuclear weapons, um, the, the the Davy Crockett uh, art, nuclear artillery, uh, to nuclear landmines and water um, in all kinds of varieties of different stuff. And it really wasn't until the 90s where that stuff start, finally started to get pulled back when the Cold War ended. But it took a lot of pressure from the public and around the world to create this sense of a nuclear taboo that what you were describing, that these things are meant to be unthinkable and not used. That took a lot of time and effort. And I really do see that starting to get pulled away, you know, these days. There are a lot of folk trying to make nuclear weapons at least thinkable uh, and not necessarily the large megaton weapons that you would use to destroy an entire city area. Uh, but as you mentioned, Russia's reliance on tactical nuclear weapons because of the decline of its conventional military um, and the idea that it would escalate a conflict by using a nuclear weapon if it ever got in trouble and then escalate to de-escalate. Like, look what I just did. Stop. You want to escalate this further? That's on you. You know, that kind of expl explanation. Well, there's a lot of war planners and deterrence thinkers in the United States that are doing exactly the same thing, building smaller nuclear weapons that are uh, dial a yield, go down even a little bit further, use them in conflicts with China, uh, who's a larger conventional military. Like these things are really always in the debate. And I think it's constantly really a big battle whether or not these things become back to the original sense uh, that they're maybe the biggest weapons aren't usable, but could we stop uh, conflict from escalating from a small nuclear device use, small relatives in the sense, 
still pretty big uh, up until the big one. It's a big debate. And I think that's why you mentioned the kind of the unthinkable, the, the logic and the insanity. That's what made for Stanley Kubrick strange love such a fascinating topic for him because he saw this model and said this is hilarious that we think that this is going to work forever this is like a black comedy this is not a dramatic story when he looked at the original source material he's like this is a comedy and for me my favorite um you know nuclear war movie uh really is, is strange love and i think because he really gets it and um but again you show that movie to someone today they're going to watch it and go that's funny that's an old problem when really i think we're still dealing with it yeah, I mean, Strange Love to me seems definitely a comedy. I wouldn't uh, ever have mistaken it for a drama, but uh, but yeah, uh, er agreed on everything else. Uh, basically, there is one point uh, about the for the, uh, the previous discussion that we had about the nuclear taboo and all of that, in which I feel Oppenheimer is a little bit fussy. Uh, I will have to rewatch it and uh, look a little bit more, but it's toward the end where we get to the question of what to do now, where Oppenheimer starts to argue uh, for some kind of global cooperation. It, it remains very vague. Um, and they have this debate on whether or not to develop uh, H2 bombs. And there, I think the movie forges a little bit just in clarity what's it about. Uh, the, dram the dramatic stakes are clear. You have this one guy uh, who is in favor. You have Oppenheimer who is against. The moral impetus seems to be with Oppenheimer, who is in in a very general sense for arms control of some kind. Uh, and you have the question of will the uh, Soviet Union get weapons and you have the whole spy stuff. Uh, but it always seems like Nolan just wants to get the point across of it would have been better for this thing to stay in the box. Uh, but uh, the whole timeline uh, of events and how they are uh, connected with each other remains fussy in the movie. And I wanted to ask you if you could clear this up a little bit. So what what actually happens? They used a weapon against Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the Soviets obviously want to get uh, one of their own. So um, are there any serious attempts uh, on side of any American actor to argue for a global nuclear regime or is this from the get-go a situation of con um, uh, of conflict uh, like it is portrayed in the movie when Truman uh, says he's like a bleeding heart or do-good or I don't know what the actual term uh, he was uh, was using was, uh, but that they are that they are set uh, on conflict. Uh, yeah, he called him a crybaby, um, which was another one of those things where it, it didn't happen in the moment. He wrote a letter, you know, after meeting Oppenheimer to someone else and called him a crybaby, but. Man, that was a good portrayal by Gary Oldman uh, of Truman. That was I like. I really enjoyed that. Um, well, I think the the it's the the question of scale is so fascinating because the difference between I think they talk about this a little bit in the movie, but maybe could it be a little more clear? The difference between a atomic bomb that you use to with uh, either imploding plutonium or uh, fissioning, you know, through a kind of a gun bomb of uh, uranium. I think the Hiroshima was 18,000 tons of explosive force, 18 kilotons, more or less, 12 to 18. Hiroshima, I think, was maybe 21. Um, a hydrogen bomb is in the megatons, millions of of tons of, of, of TNT force. So the difference between destroying a city center with an atomic bomb and an entire city with a hydrogen bomb. So the scale is is just really dramatic. And I think that's what scared a lot of people was theoretically, yeah, you could build a hydrogen bomb. Um, and it, what you do is you use the energy from 
a fission reaction and fuse together elements of hydrogen, and that produces more, uh, you know, energy and force and, and power um, than you would otherwise. And that's what's a two-stage thermonuclear whatever bomb. Um, I think the thought at the time was, yes, it was theoretical. Yes, it would be really dangerous. But there was this debate amongst the scientists. And Oppenheimer was really someone who is not a hero. Um, he's a flawed individual because at times he thought we shouldn't pursue the hydrogen bomb. Other times he said it was to be a fascinating theoretical experiment, a fascinating science challenge, because he wanted to see if it can be done too. And Oppenheimer, it's not like when the bombs dropped and, and, and ended the war, he was in fully in favor of getting rid of nuclear weapons. He was perfectly fine with building more and more and more advanced atomic bombs. Uh, he just didn't want to build the hydrogen bomb. And he wanted to put these things under international control, you know, and there was maybe a moment at the time, as you said, where we could have brought this to the, what eventually became the International Atomic Energy Agency or the UN, got all of the uranium and plutonium production facilities under international control, put together arms control agreements, because at the time we thought World War II was ended, we're in a period of peace. There was international movements to try to end war um, through like the Kellogg-Briand Pact, which was one where they were trying to end the, the means of war, uh, war as a means of uh, diplomatic uh, exchange. I think from a U.S. government perspective, though, a lot of those voices were mostly scientists or the public. A lot of the government officials weren't really trying to pull back or the military wasn't trying to pull back this effort. So I think when you had these debates, they were among scientists and the public but not so much at the military, at the government or the military level. So there were efforts to try to pull this back. Once the Russians tested their bomb in 1949, that pretty much ended for quite a while. But eventually came back to, in the 70s, uh, to a um, nuclear non-proliferation treaty, where ultimately that was signed by LBJ. It allowed, um, you know, try to create a, a cap on the new countries with nuclear weapons and the countries who had them made a commitment to try to get rid of them over time in a sustained fashion. Has that happened? Not yet. But I think that was ultimately the final, probably the most that we'll get out of that for a while until there's an additional push. Yeah, I think the main problem here, uh, the movie also alludes to, which is if, uh, if you put this all under international control, and if you put out a moratorium or what have you and try to get rid of all the weapons, you just can never be sure that the other side is not trying to uh, secretly keep some weapons or secretly develop them. And we have seen that happening. Uh, so this is possible, especially if you once had them, it is not that big a leap to get them again. Um, and and this trust issue, I think, is one of the biggest problems. And if you have this trust issue, it seems to me that deterrence is logical insanity, once again, uh, is, the, is the better solution to guarantee peace than to actually get rid of them. Because the major problem that the Soviets have, which the Americans make a lot of, uh, make a lot of effort to exploit uh, between 1945 and 1949, is that they have a nuclear monopoly uh, and that they can force their will to some degree uh, on the opponent. It quickly becomes clear how unwieldy these weapons are and that there are harsh limits as to what you can actually enforce with them because they are just so big, uh, basically. Once again, this paradox that you can't use them. Uh, but uh, in in this setting, uh, this in which you have reasonably 
reasonable actors, rational actors, uh, essentially. Uh, in that settings, uh, deterrence makes a lot of sense. We have a much bigger problem, I guess, where it comes to actors that are not rational. Like Putin is still comparably rational, I guess. Um, but when we are talking about actors like Hamas, uh, or, um, I don't know, ISIS or Iran or stuff like that. They operate on con completely different mentalities and timelines and, uh, and strategic and ideological goals, uh, which make the concept of deterrence, like it was between the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, not workable or at least um, very, very fraught, uh, to say the least. Yeah, it, it's, it's laughable to think that that regular deterrence policy would work against, you know, most non-state actors. I think that's why the toolkit typically tries to be to keep them from getting access to those materials. Um, yeah, but even then, we don't typically think that that's really the problem. Um, it, you know, or theft or diversion or sale uh, of, of an atomic device. That typically is what the foreign policy toolkit has been since the 90s to try to prevent that from happening. Um uh, the one thing I'll say is like the the question you bring up is a real one of of trust and what you can verify, and any step that's been made to try to pull back the dangers of of nuclear weapons, uh, whether it's through arms control, which is weapons that already exist in countries that have them, to try to reduce them or at least put a cap, or nonproliferation, which is to stop the spread of those things to new places, has always been what can we verify effectively. And so there's if you're going to tell two countries are going to agree to only have a thousand weapons. Well, how do you verify that? These things aren't actually that big sometimes, particularly bombs dropped from airplanes. How do you count them? You can have someone living constantly going around counting all the bombs and looking everywhere, but that's too intrusive. So it's always been like, what can we verify? Missile sites are easy. We know where they all are. There are holes in the ground. You can count them with satellites. Uh, submarines, we don't know. We don't, we can just assume they have X number of missiles. You have X number of submarines. We can count that. Um, but always that final thing, the further you get down and you're finally starting to get down to warheads and not delivery systems counting missiles or submarines, then you get down to how do you do that? And people are trying to solve that issue, trying to come up with ways to do counting and um, verification. There's this whole system called safeguards that the International Atomic Energy Agency puts on civilian nuclear power plants or places where there's production facilities of fissile material that tries to count this. So a lot of work is going into it, but it will be the ultimate challenge. If they can solve those issues, then you can get to the next step of actually reducing nuclear weapons down further. Uh, otherwise, deterrence just looks like the best option, even if it's the one you may not want to build from scratch. Yeah, <laughs> nothing, nothing, to add on, uh, nothing to add on that level. Just, just, just hopefully solve that first problem before the second one breaks. Yeah, I, I mean, it is just such an intractable thing. And uh, back to the movie, I wanted to ask you, was there any small part that you enjoyed? Because a lot of the big the movies like this really lend themselves well to like an ensemble cast. And the other times where people have tried to make a, a Manhattan Project story, the other big one is um, it's called Fat Man and Little Boy starring... Uh, it's Kev, uh, um, what is it starting? It stars uh, Kevin um, Kusak? That's not his name. Uh, what's it? Uh, well, um, 
stars a bunch of different folk, including uh, Paul Newman as Leslie Grove. It's a big ensemble cast. And th this was clearly one of those too. The number of people in small roles, you're like, wait a second, is that, is that Josh Hartnett? Um, is there any small part that you enjoyed, particularly that kind of stood out to you just as a, a film goer? Uh, specifically in casting or generally? Just generally, like, was there a character that popped to you that you want to learn more about or a particular performance that you really enjoyed that was that's not, you know, the two leads? It took me a while to recognize Robert Downey Jr. I have to admit, uh, even though he's so ubiquitous, this role goes against anything we've seen him in. Like a bureaucrat antagonist is just so against his persona uh, that he has uh, developed since 2008. Uh, so I really enjoyed this. Josh Hartnett, as you mentioned, uh, I also didn't recognize him. Uh, I had to look it up and I was still like, is that him? Because, uh, man, that man got old. <laughs> uh, and... Yeah, there there are many of these um, of these little things. I think when we go to just elements of the movie, the Trinity test stands out for me for some reason because it felt like the suspense highlight of the movie. And I again, I can't even tell you why because it's not uh, the actual dropping of the bomb. It is a test which we know will perf will work perfectly. Uh, it cannot fail, but it's still uh, for these people so much is on the line. And at the same time. Uh, it is you, ha you have this going on three levels. Uh, on the one hand, for the characters themselves, uh, a lot is at stake. So the classical uh, conflict of the movie comes to a head here, at least for the uh, color part of the movie, not for the black and white, uh, but for the color part. And uh, this is just uh, the uh, the absolute finale uh, for that plotline. After that, we just have to denouement with the attack on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which is quite the denouement, but still, uh, that is more or less just mop up. Uh, operations at this point um and then uh, you have uh, beyond the stakes you have this question of um just the inherent dangers that they are still not completely certain uh, that the chain reaction will end on the one hand and just that they have to handle such a incredibly dangerous piece of equipment and if you look at the security measures that they have in those scenes like being behind a sand uh sand sag wall or something like that sandbags uh, it is just wow um yeah and then you have the soldiers who have to ferry this thing around and uh, they are creaking it up and uh, and always you're going, it always feels so bad. Uh, I got wipes from Chernobyl uh, at this point, uh, the HBO series, which was also great at just giving you a visual, a sensual feeling of the dangers involved handling nuclear material. Uh, and in that sequence, that really came about. Uh, and then, of course, you have the whole um, moral aspect of it, which is completely absent from the scene. And this absence is a presence of its own, uh, if that makes sense, uh, because they are treating this once as a professional challenge, like uh, we will all lose our jobs if this doesn't work, uh, which, okay. Uh, but uh, And I guess that this means a lot to the characters. I understand that. But still, you are talking about a nuclear bomb which might destroy the Earth. Uh, if the zero point, many zeros, one uh, percent chance uh, happens. And this absence of the morality uh, of it um, and the characters going in and out of this discussion, like how they can at some times compartmentalize it, uh, like treat it as an organizational challenge or a scientific challenge, 
and uh, and be completely fulfilled in this challenge like they do during the trinity test and then after the moral dimension comes roaring back. Uh, you know, when Oppenheimer stands in the street and uh, the camera focuses on him when they drive away uh, with the bombs. Um, and then uh, you just have one of those many, many close-ups of his face. Uh, and I mean, oh my God, Killian Murphy does such, such a lot uh, with just with his face. Uh, and it, it serves as this mirror for us as the audience because not only does Oppenheimer in this situation realize what he's actually been a part of what they have done and now the ship has sailed now the bomb is gone and only now does he realize it but now it's too late and this moment captures this it's it's a metaphor and the thing about this metaphor is that nolan as a filmmaker takes me as the audience serious uh seriously uh you know I am not hit over the head with that metaphor. It plays out in my head as I reflect about what have I just seen. Uh, At essentially the same time as Oppenheimer reflects on it uh, on screen, and we both come to, to the same conclusion of, holy fuck, what have I done? And I just enjoyed intensely enjoyed uh, the suspense of the 20 minutes uh, of film uh, that showed the Trinity test. And I was perfectly entertained. Like uh, you can have Maximus standing around. Are oh, you not entertained? You know, uh, and yeah, I am. And and suddenly I feel soiled <laughs> a little bit. And all yeah, of that, it's hundred percent. You're rooting for them, and then you're like, oh wait, uh, well, what am I doing here again? Right? It's, uh, I heard someone make that same joke because like um, the Hunger Games just I guess came out with a prequel where it's about the the guy who was eventually the big villain in the in the story and it's all about him and his journey to become that and making the hunger games work and all that stuff you're like do i really what am i what am i doing here am i rooting for this to happen the child murder uh games like it's the same kind of ideas like you 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 see the the motivation for a lot of these scientists though particularly they they make this point it, for some of them it's an engineering and scientific endeavor challenge like can this be done We'll push science as far as we can, particularly what's fascinating to a theoretical physicist like Oppenheimer. But really, for some of those folks, it's just what was the alternative to let Hitler have a nuclear weapon first? No, that that's inconceivable. And the idea is we would get the weapon, we would use it, we would build it, hopefully maybe not even have to use it against civilian targets. We could use it on a an island and showcase the danger and then end the war that way. Um, but then turns out none of those views really ultimately mattered in the end. It was the deterrence and idea of what this power could be for possibly an indefinite period of time that lasted four years as a monopoly. This is also one of the things that's a little bit into the movie, in the movie, like the, the arms race with Germany, which we know today never was an arms race. Uh, actually, because the Germans had no chance of building it. And I found it interesting how Nolan uh, tackles the issue, because on the one hand, you have this small tinge of regret and uh, and pain when the international scientific community breaks down uh, because of uh, Nazis coming into power. Because in the beginning, Oppenheimer is in Germany. He's talking to, um, what, what's his name? Eisenberg, thanks. Uh, and uh, th- they have, like... The idea, the movie doesn't delve uh, dwell on this, uh, but um, the idea of what could these people have achieved if they had all worked together, you know, for 
peaceful stuff instead of making weapons it's there in the background you can think about it if you want to but the movie once again to its great credit doesn't hit you over the head with it and then later on at some point uh, they find out in which direction nazis are going and they're all celebrating because it's just such a mistake uh, once again yeah. Today, we know that the Nazis never really had a chance uh, because they didn't have funds, because the Manhattan Project was so expensive. Only the Americans could have pulled it off. Uh, and even they needed, I think, the support of the British. Uh, oh, absolutely. Essential. And the hilarious thing is that once the uh, Manhattan Project finished, they start cutting off connections to the British. Yeah, that's uh, not, not one of the nicer aspects of it. But still, um, this is such a huge uh, endeavor. Uh, and they sink a shit ton of money into that. Uh, and the Germans never have that kind of money. They do not have the kind of plutonium uh, for it, uh, and they go into completely uh, wrong directions. But even if they had gone into the same direction, they wouldn't have finished it. So this was never a real race. But And I am not sure how long it historically was for people. Um, in dramatizations, it is usually brought up as a point, uh, like especially with that letter uh, that Einstein uh, um, signed uh, to Roosevelt. Uh, but as far as I know, Einstein uh, was already convinced at the time that the Germans did not have the means to make a nuclear weapon, but I might be mistaken. So maybe you can shed some light uh, on that. Well, I, I think they there was a sense at the beginning that the Germans were very much further along when it came to like theoretical physics, um, you know, in terms of his expertise. I mean, Heisenberg was considered to be the best at this particular place. And it really was uh, a, an interesting trick of history where Hitler thought that um, nuclear physics and, and this kind of stuff was Jewish science. It was something that wasn't as important because they needed stuff that would make a big impact on the war now. He needed V2 rocket technology advancements. Nuclear physicists and that kind of stuff, the people that were literally there were Jewish, the people, the science and the community, he associated that together and never really put a lot of resources to it compared to other stuff. And even as Heisenberg was begging for for resources and stuff, I mean, they didn't really pay much attention to it. And um, there was the, the resources, as you mentioned, in terms of getting access to like uranium, um, the approaches they took to, to enrich that or to make plutonium, it was probably would have eventually worked, but it would have taken a lot more time. And uh, it was just a, a time, there was a moment during the Manhattan Project where it wasn't that far along, maybe halfway through or so, where we were getting reports. Um, and Leslie Grove got one of these reports. And you see this in the movie, Fat Man, a Little Boy, he's sitting on a train and he gets a report in a second like code. It says, uh, baby strangled in crib, never made it. And it was a code for the Germans had never gotten the bomb project any far along. Uh, and they knew that, but they weren't going to stop. Whether it was because of Japan or there already been too many commitments made to this. And it was kind of at the point where, what what are you going to do? You're going to just going to pull back all of these resources. Literally, the Manhattan Project is, is still referred to as we need a Manhattan Project for this. Um, we need a Manhattan Project for that because it was this national huge endeavor. They created power stations around the country. You know, tens of thousands of people were employed at this thing. To pull that back because you get those intel things was never really in the cards for a lot of those individuals. 
the same goes for not using the bomb, by the way. Uh, this is also something that uh, Dan Carlin talks about length uh, in, his, in his podcast, Logical Insanity, and I totally agree with him on that point. Once this bomb was developed, unless the Japanese really had capitulated, all these options that are often discussed, like exploding it over unpopulated terrain or just threatening with it or what have you, that simply never was an option, as was ending the Manhattan Project. Because I am firmly in agreement that the general math of uh, the operation, uh, what was it uh, called, uh, the theoretical invasion of Japan, it just checks out. Uh, you know, the projected losses on the American side, and especially if you factor in the losses uh, that were expected on the Japanese side, not that the Americans cared, but uh, mm. they calculated it. Um, and then the atomic bomb actually becomes the much more uh, preferable alternative. And yeah, you can think uh, about scenarios in which maybe uh, it wouldn't have needed use or stuff like this. But I think at, let's say, like 19, late 1943 or something, this train is out of the station for good. Like Arguably, even in 1942, they might have pulled the plug if uh, some major test had gone wrong or if the science hadn't checked out, but not for political reasons. Like once this thing was um, was in development with that resource um, commitment attached to it, it was going to be finished and it was going to be tested. And I would argue if Japan had capitulated before uh, the bomb had been finished, they might have used it maybe in Korea, um, like thrown it on Chinese staging grounds or something. And... Because then, then no one would have known, like uh, the, the the precedents wouldn't have been set. And for us as humanity, it might have actually been the better outcome that they knew Hiroshima and Nagasaki, because that's what made it so unthinkable later on. Like, um, th this is, is these big questions of history, uh, the, moral, uh, the moral decisions, the moral uh, judgments that we make here are just so far off um, and so extreme. Uh, that it becomes difficult to even talk about this stuff. It's a little bit like, uh, for me as a German especially, like the end of World War II, I think that it was a blessing for us that the uh, assassination attempt on Hitler failed. Like, um, in hindsight, basically, for all people who survived the war, uh, and especially all the people who were born after, in Europe, uh, in general, and in Germany especially, it was great that we lost as thoroughly as we did. Because that made uh, trying again unthinkable. Uh, and if they had killed Hitler in 1944, it wouldn't have been unthinkable. I am I am absolutely convinced about this. So, um, And I think it's a little bit the same with the atomic weapons. It is the very fact that they were used, and that they were used by America of all countries, um, which paved the way for deterrence as we know it in the Cold War uh, to actually work. Because no other country, I think, uh, of the major belligerents in World War II that could have gotten the bomb. I mean, Great Britain is just not in a position to get it. Uh, so we have basically Nazi Germany, we have uh, the US, and we have the Soviet Union. Of all those powers to be the first users of the weapon, um, I think the Americans are the best uh, because they are the ones who can actually have that discussion later on that we also see in the movie, which is why I also think it's important that it is in the movie. 
because this makes it into the moral question uh, that it is. It ties it to a real existing politics. I don't. I do not see a scenario in which the Soviet Union gets this weapon, nukes Berlin, and then everyone says like, "Okay, we uh, let's discuss this a little bit." Um, it it just doesn't happen. Um, and so I think this is the best result we could have gotten under very rotten circumstances. Yeah, I think um, that is. I think it's definitely a, a view that a lot of folks share. And I think if you if you listen to the episode that I did on on Oppenheimer, which was like a three hour episode, um, I don't know, released sometime when the movie came out, uh, the person who was one of my guests was uh, is a firm de- defender of defer- deterrence. He teaches uh, Dr. Justin Anderson, a really smart, really smart guy, uh, teaches at the National Defense University. And he comes away with a different conclusion of the movie that I do. Um, Not that these things are dangerous, but that we need to manage that danger in a deterrence fashion that is proven to be effective. Um, Weapons are good uh, because they hold the peace from even conventional wars starting between countries, uh, let alone nuclear ones. So that's, I think... It's healthy to have that debate, and I'm glad that we do. And I, I hope that movies like Oppenheimer reinvigorate it because a lot of the debates sometimes can get stale. They're repeating arguments heard during the Cold War, when really we're in a very different place these days. And everybody involved needs to refresh their their debates. And that's one of the main things that uh, the people who are in favor of like nuclear arms control or nonproliferation are trying to bring in new voices, new generation, new perspectives on these issues because. It's going to be a long battle. These aren't things, these aren't going away. The only way this thing ends early is when the bombs get used. Uh, otherwise, it's going to take a while. And with those happy thoughts, I would like to conclude the podcast. Thank you, Tim, for doing this with me. It's always a pleasure to have you on, and your expertise in these issues is immeasurable. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I think about this stuff a lot. Um, Super Critical Podcast uh, is where people want to watch some more of this stuff. Like we've, I'm trying to end the podcast by getting to 100 episodes. Uh, I think we're about 10 away from there. So um, we're working our way through it. We haven't done Dr. Strangelove yet because I'm holding that one for the end. But otherwise, every other movie you can imagine we've we've covered. And just always want to say thank you to uh, you, Stefan, and to Deshaun and others for the Boil Leather Audio podcast. One of my favorite things to listen to and uh, particularly the, the excellent stuff on Patreon. Thank you very much. So um, if you want to know what Tim is talking about and you don't have access yet, you know what to do, guys. Just head over to Patreon and chime in a little bit. Thank you for listening, as always, and until next time, bye-bye. If you like this podcast, you can support us via PayPal at paypal.me slash boilleather, or you go over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash boilleatheraudiohour. Patreon offers many subscription tiers, which give you early access to episodes, the possibility to weigh in on topic choices, bonus podcasts like the Boil Leather Audio Moment or the Boil Leather Audio Conversation, and of course, the possibility to be mentioned right in the beginning of every podcast. Hop over to patreon.com slash boiledleatheraudiohour or contribute over PayPal at paypal.me slash boiledleather.